Would you bet a few thousand dollars that you could sink an eight-foot putt? What about 10 grand that you could win a drag race against a Camaro with a thousand horsepower? If you bet $2 million, could you bet it all on one football game? Maybe you wish you could, but you probably wouldn't. Gamblers is about the people who did. From the Ringer Podcast Network, listen to Gamblers Season 2 on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Town is brought to you by FX's Feud, Capote versus the Swans. The second installment in Ryan Murphy's Feud anthology tells the story of acclaimed writer Truman Capote, once a confidant to society's most elite women, whom he nicknamed the Swans. Starring Naomi Watts, Diane Lane, Chloe Sevigny, Calista Flockhart, Demi Moore, Molly Ringwald, and Tom Hollander. For your Emmy consideration, visit fxnetworks.com slash FYC. This episode is brought to you by cars.com. When you add your car to your garage on cars.com, you'll unlock access to real-time insights into how much your car is worth. Plus, view its historical and projected value to decide when to sell. So when the time is right, you can secure an instant offer from a local dealership or sell it yourself on cars.com. Start tracking your car's value with your garage on cars.com. It is Thursday, September 8th. It's been one of the weirdest summers at the box office. Well, I guess at least since last summer or the summer before that. In COVID times, movies continue this slow and odd bounce back. Domestic revenue hit about $3.4 billion this summer. That was down 22% from 2019, but up significantly from last year. That was considered good compared to the previous two summers. There were big hits that showed audiences will return to theaters for the right project. Top Gun Maverick, Jurassic World Dominion, Thor 4. There were also misses. Lightyear comes to mind. Globally, only one film hit a billion dollars, Top Gun Maverick. That's compared to $5 billion grocers in summer 19. The number of films that got wide releases plummeted by about half to just 22 from May 1st to September 1st. Back in May, I brought Scott Mendelson on the show. He's the box office reporter at Forbes. And we made some predictions about summer movies. Now, The Reckoning. How do we do? Did either of us predict a surprise hit like Elvis or Where the Crawdads Sing? How did Thor 4 compare to Thor 3? We made our bets, and today we find out if we're headed to the cashier's box or we're ripping up our tickets and sulking home like losers. It's the summer box office reckoning. From The Ringer and Puck, I'm Matt Bellany, and this is The Town. All right, we are here with Scott Mendelson. Scott is the box office reporter for Forbes.com and generally considered one of the smarter analysts of the box office. So we had him in here. Now, Scott was here. First of all, welcome. Thank you for having me back. We had you in here in May, and we went through our confidence scale on how some of these big movies were going to do this summer. There's been a lot of headlines about you know the fact that some of these movies did perform well in theaters while there just weren't as many of them as normal. So do you think the summer can be declared a success or is the numbers overall still pretty alarming? The best news of this summer was that most of the big tentpole films did as well, if not better than they were expected to 
at the beginning of the summer. Um, the bad news, the biggest problem is there just weren't enough movies of all shapes and sizes. That's for a variety of concurrent reasons, you know, without getting into good and evil here, because this is a business conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of films that were delayed because of COVID post-production issues. Uh, there were films that, you know, from Fox and, or excuse me, 20th Century, I'm not going to get used to that, uh, 20th Century Studios and Searchlight that three, four years ago would have been theatrical releases, but now they end up on Hulu. You know, MGM is now owned by Amazon. You know, 20th Century is now owned by Disney. Um, and as an and and I think part of it is just sort of the the streaming over theaters mentality that had taken shape over the last couple of years. Even though I think studios are starting to get the message that theatrical can be of value to streaming, along with being of value to itself. That's not a light switch you can just turn on and off at a at a whim. I imagine if the if studios like Paramount and Warner Brothers are getting back into the game in that sense. We're not going to see the results of that for at best six, seven, eight months. Right. Um, so right now, and it's even worse in, the, in now that summer's over, we have basically six weeks with almost nothing of big coming out. Um, not so nothing. The, my, my kid went nuts for the Lyle Lyle Crocodile trailer, which debuted this morning. And in a, in a just world, this were 2014, <laughs> I'd say that'd be a sleeper little hit, just like Alexander and the very good, horrible, terrible, no good, very right. bad day was. Right. That was a film that did 100 million on like a 30 budget and everybody was happy. It looks good, by the way. I mean, really? Sean Mendes has a singing crocodile? Oh, I don't care who does that. I mean, it's anybody else. <laughs> uh, and again, good is relatively speaking. Right. Yeah. Um, My kid was into it. All right. Yeah, yeah. So there are some movies coming out, but you're right. This is a box office desert. We've talked about that on the show before. I want to get into the summer specifically because we made some predictions and I'm looking back at them. Craig sent us them this morning. Um, some of them we did okay. So first and foremost, Top Gun Maverick. We both, this. you know, when we did this pod, it was about to come out. And we didn't know whether it was going to, we thought it would overperform. You know, the the initial tracking was like ludicrously low, but I gave it a nine on my confidence scale. You gave it an eight. I said it would do between 500 and 600 worldwide. You said it would probably do 450 worldwide. We are at 1.4 billion and counting right now. Missed it by that much. <laughs> so what happened there? I blame the mummy. Right. Because you know, I, be- I believed in Tom Cruise so much that I thought the dark universe was going to work. The, mu- the, the infamous mummy movie that was terrible and killed the plan to do all these monster movies. You know, it's, it's prior to that. You know, I was all in on the Tom Cruise train. He can do no wrong. That being said, jokes aside, Prior to this, there was a genuine ceiling for the last 15 years for non-Mission Impossible Tom Cruise movies. I'm right. thinking, you know, movies good and mostly pretty good. Uh, you know, Edge of Tomorrow, Oblivion, Jack Reacher, um, The Mummy. Um, and that was over under 100 million domestic and over under 300 worldwide. So it stood to reason that was Pete Maverick Mitchell as much of a marquee character as Ethan Hunt? And the answer turned out to be, oh, God, yes. Yeah. Signature star, signature role. I think we underestimated the desire of people to go back to something that felt fresh but familiar and would be a, you know, feel-good moment in this weird time. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, in a skewed way, I it's another film that I think played much better when it did than if it had just been another summer temple in the middle of Oh, absolutely. 
if this movie had come out as planned in 2020, along with, you know, 15 other blockbusters, yeah, that summer, Tenet, it would have been fine. It probably would yeah. have gotten to seven, 800, but this movie is now at 700 million domestic. I mean, it's like the fifth biggest grossing movie of all time domestic. My favorite stat is that adjusted for inflation, even adjusted for inflation, because it just passed Thunderball and The Dark Knight, it is the biggest grossing non-fantastical real-world action movie ever made in North America. Crazy. <laughs> Crazy. Although non-fantastical, clearly you have not looked at Tom Cruise's face that closely. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's actually, and you know, I'll get into this a little bit. We talked about Jurassic, but mm -hmm. you know, in in a certain sense, that fits into the whole. No, he's not a superhero, but somebody like Jason Bourne, James Bond, John Wick, uh, Ethan Hunt, he's basically an unkillable, you know, righteous, awesome machine. He might as well be a superhero for all intents and purposes. Yeah. So as a marquee character, Tom Cruise as Ethan Hunt, and apparently Tom Cruise as Pete Maverick Mitchell, you know, is as big of a deal as a, you know, a Batman, a T'Challa, or a, you know, a Freddie Mercury. Right. Um, he flies, too. All right. Yeah. All right, let's move on to Jurassic World Dominion. Came out in June. I had it as a nine. I said it would do a billion, and I predicted it would be the biggest hit of the summer, although grossed less than the previous one. You had it as a 10 and said it would cross a billion and be the biggest hit of the summer also. So it ultimately got to 996 million worldwide. Almost a billion. So close. We did pretty well there. We did pretty well there. It was not the biggest of the summer, though, obviously, for Tom Tom uh, Cruise got that with Top Gun. Um, yeah, and the factor here was China, where the film did play in China, and it did 160-ish, it might be at 165 by now, million dollars in China, which is terrific for a post-COVID Hollywood movie playing in China, because, you know, the, the variables have changed. You know, most of the big blockbusters aren't even playing in China anymore, and the ones that are, aren't pulling anywhere near the numbers that they pulled in 2017, 18, and 19. Um Jurassic World made 227 in 2015. Jurassic World Fallen Kingdom made 267 in 2000, or excuse me, 262 in 2018. In China. In China alone. Neither of those films needed China to cross a billion dollars uh, for what that's worth. Right. Um, so the downturn in China is less about the Jurassic brand than it is just about, you know, the way the world works now in 2022. And what we've discovered in China, especially after, you know, Top Gun, Doctor Strange, Spider-Man pulled best case scenario box office without it, the shoe's now on the other foot. The burden of proof is now on China to say, hey, Hollywood should still pay attention to us. Right. Right. Increasingly, people don't. Um, but, you know, as, as great as it was, this movie almost got to a billion. The last one, was 1.3. So this is a decline in this franchise. And usually- uh, A reasonable decline. I guess so. But, you know, they tried to eventize it with bringing back the original cast and kind of have a, have a wrap-up feel to the franchise and almost try to do an Avengers Endgame type thing here. So I thought it might get a little bit higher than this. And it will not be done, despite what they're saying. There will be yeah, another. They will do something with it. Uh, we're going to move on. Those are two hits. We're moving on to Lightyear, the Disney Pixar release, Toy Story prequel, kind of not prequel movie. I said it was, I had a seven on the confidence scale. You had a seven as well. And you said it would maybe get to about 500, 600 million. 
Uh, we were both a little bullish there. Ultimately, Lightyear got to 218 million worldwide. Biggest flop for Pixar since what? Good Dinosaur? Not counting Onward, which obviously got kneecapped by COVID. Yes, it's their biggest flop ever, period. Right. Um, what happened here and what did we miss? I wish I had noticed this two years ago, but literally 24 hours before the Thursday numbers come up, I literally thought, shit, it's solo all over again. <laughs> and that's what it was. It was an unrequested French origin story prequel spinoff from a character that's technically the co-lead in an already existing franchise starring a different actor with an otherwise generic action sci-fi adventure story that if you're not interested in that pitch specifically brings nothing new to the table. Now, Lightyear was a good three-star picture, so it was Solo for that matter, but it was not an event movie. Do I think the Disney Plus factor hurt it? Yes, I do. The fact that all the other movies in the past three Pixar movies have gone to Disney Plus. Yes. What about the politics stuff? Do you think the gay kids? I think that costed a few million bucks here and there. Mm -hmm. Here's the way I look at it. Let's say it did make a difference. Let's say it costed $10 million in domestic ticket sales. That still puts it at 128 domestic, barely over the good dinosaur. So there isn't $100 million in ticket sales that would have been sold if not for the controversy. And one of the reasons we know that is because Lightyear, which garnered mostly online and I would argue performative controversy over its supporting character who is an, uh, an older married black lesbian, that film was a bomb because everybody was too busy spending their money on Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, Jurassic World Dominion, and Thor Love and Thunder, all three of which had major female non-white lesbian supporting characters. Yeah, I mean, I, you could make the argument this is a kid's movie, but I, I agree with you. I don't think people don't go to see movies in mass numbers because of the culture war stuff. I yes. just don't. I just don't. And the same thing with, you know, if Don't Worry Darling breaks out, and I'm guessing it will, it'll be another example of how if people want to see a movie, they'll see a movie. If they don't, then it's got to take heaven and earth to get them there. Right. Um, I think there were a lot of factors there. Um, we don't have to go, you know, rehash everything, but I think that that Disney learned a lot of lessons from Lightyear. All right, let's move on to one. We this that was a bomb. Let's move on to one that we thought would bomb but didn't. Elvis. I had it as a three on my confidence scale. I said I was quote smelling a bomb. You had it a little more bullish. You had it as a as a five. Uh, the numbers that came in were. Uh, 281 million worldwide and counting and probably not 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 the biggest surprise but I, I actually i would say it's the biggest surprise of the summer that and crawdads but this is given where it got given the subject matter given that it's two and a half hours i did not think this movie would do what it did what did, what did i miss i mean i was always optimistic that it would do okay just because Warner Brothers is very good at selling less than conventional big movies as full-on theatrical hits. And this was their only big summer. Yeah, this was their only big summer because Black Adam got delayed to October. Right. They took it to Cannes and they did a whole rollout. And I think I underestimated the Baz Luhrmann fan base. Yes. And the fact that he is sort of a franchise unto himself. And Elvis Presley is obviously a marquee character. Is he, though? Apparently, just, yes. Two hundred eighty-one million dollars. I know, I know, but yes. like, but for like <laughs> seventy-year-olds, right? Like, does anyone under fifty care about Elvis? And here's one thing that I didn't predict 
well, but I did after Memorial Day weekend, which is that the sheer amount of older and irregular moviegoers seeing Top Gun Maverick in theaters for a month before Elvis came out turned out to be a huge boon for Elvis because they all saw the trailer. Right. I could see that. Yeah. Um, and that it was interesting because Warner Brothers had been adhering to this 45 day window where movies would go from Warner Brothers would go directly to HBO Max. They extended that window because Elvis was still playing pretty well in theaters. It didn't go to HBO Max until this past weekend from Labor Day. Now, I think they're realizing what Universal has realized, which is that the PVOD revenue stream does not cannibalize uh, theatrical, but streaming might. Right. PVOD means pay-per-view at home. Yes. 20 bucks a pop for a rental. Yes. Um, and you're right. And that it was available there, but people were still going to see it in theaters. Yes. As we've seen for the last, at least since a quiet place, which did about as well as it was supposed to do pre-COVID and was just as leggy as it otherwise would have been, even though it was on Paramount Plus and PVOD after 45 days. Minions. I had it as an eight. I predicted that there might be a little bit of Minions fatigue but it will still be huge. You had it as a 10. It came in at 893 million, pretty much as predicted, right? Yeah, it'll cross 900 this weekend. It's earned about 30 million in China, which again, the last Despicable Me 3 made 160 or 53 million in China. So that's obviously a downturn. Although again, it came out a week, a month and a half later. Mm -hmm. uh, domestically, it has made more money than the first Minions by a lot. Uh, I don't have the ex it's at three sixty right now. It might crawl past Secret Life of Pets and Despicable Me Two, both of which did three sixty eight respectively. It's way above Despicable Me Two or Three, which did I believe two seventy two sixty four in twenty seventeen. That was the only movie to cross a billion worldwide in the summer of twenty seventeen. So this franchise has always been yeah, but huge. The last Minion standalone grossed one point one worldwide yes so this is down significantly from that but when you only spend 80 million on these uh, you know these movies then you're still drowning in money i know it's so crazy that i mean what a what a great franchise for universal because it is and i think the lesson that we learned is that you know and i i do this too you know i treat despicable me as sort of the main franchise and minions as sort of the spinoff franchise and i think for most audiences they're just interchangeable right I know for my kid, they are. And, uh, you know, when a movie like Lightyear costs $200 million and is made largely in Emeryville, California, and a movie like Minions is made for $80 million, largely overseas, it really starts to get you to look at the economic model for these movies. Uh, but that's another podcast. All right, <laughs> let's move on to Thor, Love and Thunder. I've got a take on this one. I didn't I didn't offer a score or a, a prediction, a confidence prediction, but I said that I was a bit bearish. I didn't think it would get anywhere near 850, which is what the last Thor did. It'll be lucky if it gets to 600, I said. Um, you were a 10. You were very confident about this movie. I had heard some grumblings that it wasn't great. Um, ultimately, it came in at 748 million worldwide. It did better than Thor 3 domestically, but it underperformed overseas because it did not have China. Yes. And absent China, absent Russia, it would have made more money than Thor Ragnarok worldwide as well. The total for Thor Ragnarok was $854 million in 2017. If you take out China and Russia, that's around $712 million, which Thor's Love and Thunder passed a few weeks ago. 
So this movie did fine. This movie oh, yeah, did fine. It's a huge hit. I feel like it was a there was a discourse around it that it was yes. you know people were shitting on Marvel. Oh, creativity problems, and they weren't you know this one felt a little bit like a retread of Ragnarok. So people were like, oh, it's not as fresh. But if you look at the numbers, did fine. Yeah, it's it's another you know it's another example of like if you look at the discourse online of the Jurassic franchise, you think nobody shows up and everybody hates this franchise, but. You know, again, you're averaging a billion a pop. Right. Dude, I think Thor Love and Thunder was the best Marvel movie. Good God, no. But let me tell you, if John Wick Chapter 4 comes out next year and does only 5 to 10% more than John Wick Chapter 3, Lionsgate will be okay with that. Right. Uh, all right. Nope. I was not as confident as you might think, given Jordan Peele's track record. I said, if this thing gets to $250 million, that's a huge success, but I doubt it will. Uh, I gave it a seven. You were a 10 on Nope. You were very bullish. It ended up underperforming us, his last movie, significantly. It was yes. 159 million worldwide. More than 100 of that came from domestic. So this movie did not perform well overseas. But, and it, and it had a much higher budget than previous Jordan Peele films. So it's still profitable for Universal, but not nearly what, the previous two get out and us were. Yeah. I mean, I'll be honest when, when we were chittered, I mean, up until before it came out, I kind of presumed the budget was around 40, $45 million. Cause his first one was five. His second one was 25. And I know we had gotten an upswing, but 69, I mean, that's what it chapter two cost. And mm -hmm. that was after it chapter one crossed 700 worldwide. So, you know, you could argue maybe that was too much money for an original starlight, high concept horror picture. But if Universal wants to present themselves as a safe place for marquee filmmakers, then if anything, it's to their benefit to maybe make a little bit less money on a Jordan Peele picture because they gave him a lot of money this one time. I mean, it will, it will if it doesn't profit in theatrical, they'll profit on BVOD once that's all wrapped up. Um so yeah, I mean, I, I going into the summer again, thinking it cost maybe forty, forty-five million. I thought, well, maybe it'll do one hundred and sixty worldwide. That's still four times its budget. Whatever, they'll be thrilled. It did do about one hundred and sixty, but on a sixty-nine million dollar budget. Yeah, um, and, you know, and they didn't show. I mean, I thought the marketing for this went on for a long time. I mean, they had like a Super Bowl spot, and they did you know a full run up on this movie. Um, so I don't know that they. I think that's got to feel like a disappointment. A disappointment, yes, but it's, you know, it's, it's, and I think this is part of Universal's long game and that mm -hmm. they're trying to establish themselves as an old school studio that can be trusted. And that means sometimes you lose a couple bucks on something like Nope or. Yeah, I don't think they'll lose money, but, but no, it's not, I don't think they will. The other movies were. They can spin it as a badge of honor. Totally, totally. All right. Bullet Train, Brad Pitt. I was actually pretty bullish on this. I said an eight or a nine. It could do 300 million worldwide. You were a seven, slightly less bullish. Uh, it ended up, it's still in theaters, but it ended up at 198 million worldwide, probably going to cross 200 very soon, not 300. No, and that's, you know, I mean, it could have absolutely, honestly, it wasn't that. And again, I know I, I'm always leery of execution dependent predictions because, you know, I, I, but the movie wasn't that great. Right. <laughs> I think the reason it's lagging out is because it was the last biggie of the summer, which was very intentional. Yeah. Craig liked part. it. Craig said it was pretty good. My wife saw it. She thought she thought it was fine. I thought I enjoyed it. I think it, you know it's a three star picture, but mm -hmm. I don't think it was the kind of zeitgeist 
you know, but again, you know, it's how many R-rated action movies have done 300 worldwide over the last several years. That's true. The John Wick, Bad Boys 4, and and whatever. I mean, it's 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 still going to cross 100, probably. It's still tracking on par with The Lost City, which made it to 105. And like a year ago, I wrote about how, you know, The Lost City and Bullet Train are basically Hollywood's best hopes for proving the commercial value of the old school movie. Right. Um, and I think both films did what they needed to do. Right. So, all right. we The one we didn't talk about on the pod that I think we probably should now is Where the Crawdads Sing. Because we didn't even consider that to be a potential, you know, not blockbuster, but something that would generate significant revenue. This movie, which, with no stars, got to $116 million worldwide, including $86 million domestic. And how did that happen? Well, first of all, it was the only movie of the summer of that scale, and it was a $24 million picture, so it's not that much of a scale. It was the only film of that scale this summer aimed at women and, young, and older girls. And that's kind of embarrassing and pathetic, while I think to a certain extent, studios were more likely to hold on to a Venom or a Top Gun or a, you know, a Doctor Strange until theaters were, were on stronger footing. Right. Correlation is not causation, but... When you release Eternals and Shang-Chi and Black Widow in summer slash early fall 2021, but you hold Doctor Strange and Thor for summer 2022, you know, and you put Lightyear in theaters while you send the, you know, you send Luca, Soul, and Turning Red to Disney Plus, fair or not, that creates certain optics. Mm -hmm. That being said, back to Crawdads. It is based on a very popular novel. Right. It is... PG-13 in a way that's almost comically wholesome in that your grandmother could enjoy it. Yep. I mean, the film has a lot of dark subject matter, but it's not a particularly grotesque picture. And they use Reese. They use Reese in the marketing. She's a producer, not in the movie, but she was all over the marketing, which I think ended up being smart. She was involved. There's a new Taylor Swift song. All right. The only one we didn't talk about because it came out before we did the pod earlier was Dr. Strange 2. Multiverse of Madness, which, end, which ended up doing $952 million worldwide. I think that one ended up being a surprise to a lot of people in Hollywood because this was not considered one of the more commercial crowd-pleaser Marvel movies. Um, ended up doing fine. Oh, yeah. It was a huge hit. I mean, I, it was very cleverly positioned as... A, the summer kickoff Marvel movies tend to open bigger, yep. gross a bit more, and are a little bit more front-loaded than the mid-July flicks. It was very much positioned as, at least in the marketing, as a mythology episode. Right. You know, for going, you know, what about TV shows here? Um, and yeah, I think the marketing kind of let people think there were going to be a, a lot more cameos and status quo changes and event sequences that are acting. It was basically just a Doctor Strange movie. Right. But financially, I mean, it did 72% more, not counting China and Russia, where it did not play, than the first Doctor Strange. That's incredible. That is incredible. All right. Summer in a nutshell. Give me your takeaway in five words or less. Two few movies. <laughs> Deadpool scored. Okay. Not bad. Mine would be okay, but not enough movies. Top Gun overperforming the way it did was the only reason the summer was down closer to 20% than 40%. Right. But 
you still had a summer that was down 20% from 2019, which itself was kind of a weird year because they had all the Disney A-plus temples because Bob Iger was on his way out. There were $5 billion grocers in the summer of 2019. This summer, yes. there was one. So there's your difference. The good news is that wealth has spread more. You had hits from more than just Disney. Right. Um, the other good news is it stands to reason that if the, if the studios will invest in theatrical on the level they did before COVID, this summer suggests that they will they may get back to something approximate to theatrical overall theatrical revenue before COVID. Mm, I'm still doubtful, but that's another podcast. We will get into it another time. Scott, thank you for joining us. We'll do it again soon. Absolutely. Take care. Okay, we are back with the call sheet. I've got producer Craig here. Craig, you excited? NFL kicks off tonight? Yeah, it's finally back. I've been prepping all summer for this day. Yeah, for those who don't know, Craig, in addition to producing this podcast and the rewatchables, he is also a co-host of the Ringer Fantasy Football podcast, which you should absolutely be listening to, especially if you have a fantasy football team like I do. So I consider you an expert in all things football. As you should. You cause a little bit of controversy in my fantasy league because my college friends thought that I was getting insider tips from a ringer celebrity such as yourself. <laughs> and uh, it was a little bit controversial, but you have no inside information. You are going by the publicly available statistics. Correct. I'm no longer producing Sean McVay's podcast, so I have no insider information. Yeah, that's true. You did produce a Sean McVay show. All right. So let's do a ratings discussion. My prediction tonight is about the NFL kickoff ratings. And I believe they will be down from last year's season opener. And let's explain why. 26 million people tuned in last year on NBC to watch the Tampa Bay Buccaneers win in dramatic fashion, 31 to 29 over the Dallas Cowboys. That was NBC's biggest audience in six years for its NFL opener. I just don't think the game matches up to that. I know people love the Bills and the Rams are the defending Super Bowl champions, but the combination of that there's no Brady in this game and it will likely, if we're playing the percent percentages, not be a dramatic come from behind victory, I think that the viewership numbers will be down. I think this game is going to be huge and I think it'll be just as popular as last year, but in my head, that means when the opening kickoff occurs, just as many people will be watching as there were last year, but you inform me that if, if it's a close game in the third quarter and people tune in, that also factors into the ratings. It's not just who was watching when the game started. So I get your point. Oh, yeah. It's it's an average. If the game is great and people see that on social media right. or right. whatever and they start tuning in, you can get a spike late in the game. That's why when you're looking at the Super Bowl every year, the networks that are broadcasting, they hope for a close game. Because they know people tune out if it's a blowout. I still think this is going to be huge. Josh Allen is a star. The Rams are reigning champs. Incredibly popular team. West Coast versus East Coast. I think it'll be big. It's been a really, I feel like it's been a tumultuous offseason for the NFL for many reasons. Um, yeah, I, I think it's going to be big. All right. Well, I will be tuning in. You will be tuning in. Hopefully, my fantasy players will be doing okay. And we will know tomorrow whether we're right or not. All right. I want to thank Scott Mendelson for coming on the show. I want to thank producer Craig. And I want to thank you. We'll see you next week. This episode is brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. As a ruthless king builds his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape will fight for the future of apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX on May 10th and in theaters everywhere. Get tickets now.
This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You might say all kinds of stuff when things go wrong, but these are the words you really need to remember. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. They've got options to fit your unique insurance needs, meaning you can talk to your agent to choose the coverage you need, have coverage options to protect the things you value most, file a claim right on the State Farm mobile app, and even reach a real person when you need to talk to someone. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there.